You'll notice that today is the launch of the 2008 Year of World Impact. where We have a year theme uh, going on ever since basically around 2001, 2002. And this year we've deemed it the, world, the Year of World Impact. I want to begin with a quote by Charles Fuller, which is in front of you on your sheet. He said this, When a believer studies the word prayerfully and with an obedient heart, Indeed, I believe that is what we do here. Two things are accomplished. He grows in grace and in the knowledge of God, and he goes to work. I have one great concern of my life that dominates everything else. Everything pales in comparison to this one issue. Is God pleased with my life, what I do, who I am? Nothing else really matters except that. Is God pleased with me? What do you think my main concern for Bridgeway is? Is God pleased with Bridgeway? If He's not, we either need to alter it or shut it down. But whenever I come to a passage in Scripture, when it talks about what God is pleased with and what He's not, I immediately put myself in that matrix and say, am I pleasing to God? Does that make sense? Pretty basic. Well, as you know, there's a couple of passages in Scripture that I consider paranoia passages. There's stuff that keeps me up at night. And one of them is the one where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you remember that? And you understand that the heart of Christianity is knowing God, having a personal relationship with God. But then there's another one that's almost just like it, and we come across it. In Matthew 25, I'm going to have you look at four passages. This isn't one of them. Just listen to the story. This talks about kind of what we would deem as the end of the world. Jesus is sitting as a judge over mankind, and he says that he's going to separate people. Separate what he deems the sheep from the goats. On his right hand side, he puts the sheep, he calls them the righteous, and they basically said, He said, well done. They said, what did we do that was so good? And he said, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick. You tended to my needs. I was a stranger. You welcomed me in. And I was in prison and you visited me. And they said, when in the world did we see you like that? He said, as you've done to the least of these brothers, you've done unto me. Well, then he looks at the other crew that's on his left side, the goats, He says, depart from me. And they're sent into eternal darkness. And they said, what's what's the issue? He said, I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was a stranger. You didn't bring me in. I was sick. You didn't tend to my needs. And I was in prison. You didn't visit me. And they said, when did we ever see you like that? He said, as you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. I take it personally. That passage makes me nervous. Why? First of all, we're talking about eternal damnation. I don't like that. All right? I'd rather talk about frilly things and nice things. But the main issue of why it makes me paranoid is that there's a part of Christianity that is believing rightly. And yes, what you believe God to be, who you believe God to be, is the primary issue. But then there's an element of Christianity that is doing stuff. My problem in my life, I'm too far on one side. I think a lot about right theology, as I should. 
I think a lot about having my life aligned properly internally with God, as I should. But I neglect the other side of it. I'm not doing stuff. I'm just thinking right thoughts. And in this passage, there's nothing about thinking right thoughts. It's all about action. If I was just to line up in this passage by myself, I'm a complete failure. And that makes me nervous. You see, we got to begin to balance the inward and the outward in our spiritual lives. As a church, as an equipping church, we're always going to be top-heavy on the issue of right doctrine, right theology, lining up our lives, our spiritual lives with Jesus Christ. And that should be a primary beginning point. But there's a whole other element to Christianity that cannot be ignored, and I believe it is being ignored in our church, and that's doing stuff. But I didn't want to call it the year of doing stuff. That sounds stupid. So we called it the year of world impact. If you are believing right, if you're doing right, then how in the world are they not going to be impacted? Yeah. Now, in order to equip you, we're going to be going through Scripture, right? Because that's what we do here. God's Word transforms our minds and we become different people. Therefore, we're going to be going through the Bible all year. We're going to go through five books, all right? Three Old Testament books, two New Testament books. Here they are. First two Old Testament books are Amos and Habakkuk. And I know what you're thinking. Again? Why do we always study... Nobody studies Amos and Habakkuk. Come on! I can't even spell it without a thesaurus or a dictionary. All right. We're going to go through those because they speak about justice. In the Old Testament, God screams out, where is justice that needs to be here? But we're not looking at that anymore. Well, we are this year. The third Old Testament book is the book of Proverbs. I've never taught the book of Proverbs in its entirety. It's 31 chapters. It's a big book. Problem is, is it keeps repeating itself. You're reading through and it says, avoid the adulteress. Then you read three lines later, avoid the adulteress. You go eight chapters down. Avoid the, you're like, okay, I get it. Why don't you put all those together? That would be nice. It's a little easier. So what I'm doing is taking all 31 chapters, breaking every verse out individually, and putting them in their logical categories. And we will go through the full book of Proverbs, but in topic as we go through it and examine all the Scriptures on a given topic. So the first one would be how to what the benefit of gaining wisdom is. The second one is how to gain wisdom. The third one is maybe who to hang around and who to avoid. The other one is how to uh, have a good work ethic. The next one, there's all these things that Proverbs talks about because if we live wisely in obedience to God, that's called lifestyle evangelism. And it makes a difference to the world. Amen? In the New Testament, we're going to cover two books. One of them is called Matthew. It's really long. Have you ever read it? It's super, super long. It's a 22-part series. That's going to take up a massive chunk of the year. The other book is Ephesians, which we haven't studied since around the year 2000. So, we have a number of books laid out before us as we go through this year. I would hope that you commit to being here as much as you possibly can. I understand life knocks you out. And I would also say that sometimes you've got to come just out of discipline. But I think there has to be some part of craving the Word of God to want to be here. I would hope that you don't have to force yourself every morning. But I do know this year is going to change us. I do know it's about kicking us out and getting something done. And that's what we need to talk about this morning. In order to talk about being practical, we came up with something tangible and fun to launch the year with. 
And that is this. How many of you received a certificate uh, from leadership? Raise your hand. There should be four of you. There's one. There's one. Who else? There's four of them. Russ is ripping somebody off. Where's the other ones? All right. Uh, I don't know where they are. Okay. Now then, if you received a certificate, what it says on there is after service, you take that certificate back to Russ, he'll cut you a $100 check. Right? Literally. Why? Well, there's two rules on it. The first rule is you can't spend it on yourself. You have to spend it on ministry on somebody else. Second thing is you have to report back and tell us what God had you spend it on so that we can understand what God's doing. What's the point? We did it four times every service. That's 1600 bucks. we wanted to put right back practically into the community through you. We selected randomly three individuals and one person that leads a small group. Why? To train what it's like to come together as a team and decide as a team how to spend that $100 in ministry. Everyone else is just an individual and say, as you go out into the world carrying Jesus Christ, keep your eyes open. Pray about it. Watch. What is God doing? It may be tomorrow. It may be six months down the road. But all of a sudden, something's going to cross in front of you and you're going to go, that's it. Drop the hundred bucks on that person, whoever that is, for whatever that is. Whether it's making, it's spending a hundred bucks and buying all the stuff to make sandwiches or baskets and take them out and leave them at your neighbor's door. I don't care. Just do something for someone and love on them in the name of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, the fill in the blank in front of you is true for all of us. It is very simply this. We are here to be salt and light to the world. We are here to be salt and light to the world. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for a challenge and some excitement to stir amongst us that this year would be a year of transformation in the lives of not only our church, but in the lives of the world. Father, may we engage our communities. Would we engage our neighbors? Would we engage anyone you bring across our path tangibly loving on them in the name of Jesus Christ? We pray. Amen. Matthew 5.13 was where I got that idea. And it's very simply this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. To some degree, there is a call to secrecy. To some degree, there is a call to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I understand that. But to another degree, there's a reason to do things outwardly and let them know exactly why you're doing it. Because then they look at God different. But we are to be salt and light. Those are agents of influence. We are supposed to make a difference in our world. In other words, if you're a Christian, your job should be different. Because you're there. Your house should be different because a Christian lives there. Everything about your world should be altered because of you. Do we take that stuff seriously? Like I told you, I love when God boils things down and tells me exactly what He wants. And that is the first passage we're going to look at today. Would you turn with me to Micah 6 8? Micah's in the Old Testament. It's a little tiny book, it's page 659. So if you could find page 659, that would probably help you out. It's just one verse, but it speaks volumes. 
Micah 6, 8, page 6, 5, 9. Although God has called every believer to be salt and light to the world, He specifies what pleases Him. Micah 6, 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Is humility important? Yeah, as a matter of fact, Jesus stopped this whole ministry, brought a little kid amongst them, and He said, unless you humble yourself and become like this little kid, you're not even getting into the kingdom of heaven. Humility is important. We talk about that a lot around here. But today we're going to talk an awful lot about mercy, about charity, about justice, and what that stuff means, and how we're supposed to do it. As a matter of fact, when Christ was asked what the greatest commandment was, what did He say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is likewise, love your neighbor as yourself. We're not doing that. We're doing the first one a lot. We're not doing the second one. Because we treat ourselves like kings and queens. We treat our neighbors like leftovers. That's not okay. We have to do things differently. Now, this is not a change in focus for the church. You understand that I have a calling as an individual man, and then I have a calling as a pastor. My calling as a pastor, and for Bridgeway, this church, is to equip people. How do we know that? Because when Jesus took Peter for a walk, he said, do you love me? He said, of course I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. That's what we do here. We train you up to get out there and do something. We train you up. It's like filling a car with gas that it might drive somewhere, not just stay parked. You fill up your body with nutrients so you can stretch your muscles and accomplish something. The goal is what happens when you leave here. That's my calling as a pastor. The problem is I allow that calling to take all my attention and forget that I'm an individual Christian before God. My individual calling before God is to evangelize the world and to do something in tangible love. And I'm not doing that. But make no mistake, we're not changing the focus of the church. We're talking about Christianity just like always, but this time we're just looking at it a little differently. We need to be more than just a full church. Okay, so we have a full church. Yay! Okay, that is a good thing. You understand? I get excited about that stuff. That's great. Why? Because that means more people are learning about the Word of God. Do I want this place to be full? Absolutely. Because I believe people are changing here. But do you understand that that's not what church is for? That's not the only thing? No! It's more than a full church. It's getting out and being sent out into the world in mass. That's what we're trying to accomplish here. We've got to break the consumer-mindedness that we just come here and get filled up and go home and watch TV. That's not Christianity. But that is what we're doing I know that the church is for more than that. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. Turn with me to Ephesians 4.11. It's page 828. 828, Ephesians 4.11. It's very clear. The Bible isn't hiding any of this stuff. It's very obvious. Ephesians 4.11, page 828. i got four passages for you to look at. This is the second of those four. Ephesians 4.11. Pretty clear, page 828. It was He, meaning God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, 
Some to be pastors and teachers. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds like the church, yeah? Sounds like the leadership of the church. Why is the leadership of the church here? Well, look at the next phrase. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service. Did you see that? Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, we're here to prepare you for works of service. That's what you do. But do you understand it also said that you're never going to be mature until you stretch your muscles and do something? Did you see that? That's pretty obvious. So what are good deeds? What are good works? What are works of service? They're tangible expressions of love. Are those important to God? 2 Timothy 3.17 All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Matthew 11.19 Wisdom is proved right by our actions. In other words, if it's just words and it doesn't work, the words aren't good. John 13.1 Having loved His own who are in the world... He now showed them the full extent of his love. And then Jesus did what? Wash the disciples' feet. In other words, he always loved them, but then he demonstrated how much he loved them by washing their feet. Therefore, our actions legitimize our claims. We're just mostly talk. And that's why this year we got to do it differently. Now, I believe that these good works, these good deeds, these acts of service are valuable to the world. If you take notes, there's a big blank spot on the back of your sheet. Why don't you write these down? Four things I think that good works do. The first one is obvious, provides opportunities to preach the gospel. Yeah, is that pretty obvious? Does serving people open doors for the gospel? Yeah. I don't think we have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. Okay? What happened when Mother Teresa showed up at the prayer breakfast for the president? You guys remember what happened? Mother Teresa shows up. It's all the biggest leaders of America, the world's most powerful country. What did they do when she was named? Standing ovation. Why? Because she was super intelligent? Because she was super schooled? Because she... No. She's a servant and everyone knew it and that demanded respect. And everyone applauded her. Serving opens doors. And nobody's just going to get saved because you gave them a hot meal. So yeah, sometime you've got to open up your mouth and you've got to say something, right? Because we're saved by the gospel of Christ. We're not saved just because someone was nice to you. So yes, at some point we bring Jesus into the mix. But the problem is, is that the modern day church has held on to only number one as being the whole reason for doing good works. If no one gets saved, there's no point in doing it. That's what everyone's saying. And I've bought into that myself. How embarrassing is that? I believe there's more to it than that. Not only does it open the opportunity to minister and share the gospel, but number two... It may possibly lead to personal reconciliation with God. What do I mean? I mean, there's a bunch of people in this world that are crying out, God, do you remember me? Do you love me? And the answer to that prayer lies within you. When you drop off groceries at your neighbor's house and they don't even know who did it, that's God's answer to their prayer, do you love me? 
You understand? That leads to personal reconciliation between those two. It's got nothing to do with you. You don't know if they're ever going to be saved or not. That's not the point. The point is, God's trying to give them a message, and you're the postman. So we deliver the message of love. Third thing that I think it does is fulfill created intent. Fulfill created intent. Ephesians 2.10 said we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to what? Do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you understand that in the Garden of Eden when everything was good, Adam and Eve had stuff to do. When you act like a human being, it makes God smile. Why? Because He made it. When my little girls do the naked dance, I think it's hilarious. They do that in the bathtub, the little naked dance, and they run around and, and say, naked, naked, naked. It's very funny. And when you watch a little three-year-old running around all naked and doing that, it's hilarious because she's being a little kid. When kids are kids, it makes you smile. You know what? There is a reason to love on other people, and sometimes it's because that's what you were created to do. And God smiles and goes, oh, look at him go. Oh, they're loving on each other. That's so cool. I love that. That's what I made them for. And then number four, I believe that it glorifies God. If the church in mass reached out to their cities, do you think the world would look back and go, wow, God's pretty cool? Okay, nothing more complicated than that. Good works matter. We are not saved by good works. Are we all tracking with this? I don't ever want to have you believe that I'm telling you in some way that you are saved by doing good things. Do you understand? Good people still go to hell. That's not the point. You are not going to heaven because you're a good person. Heaven isn't for good people. It's for forgiven people, right? I'm not telling you that saves you, but I'm telling you the Bible says you are saved to do good works, right? Good works matter. Before Jesus took off from this earth, he left them with the Great Commission. What's the first word of the Great Commission? Go. Guess what it means? Go. It means don't stay here. Go away. Do something. Don't just stand around and talk about it. Go out there and do something. Great Commission. Go. God is already active and He's moving around. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Go find out what He's already doing, join in with it, and get something done. Get something accomplished. Be a God chaser. Go try to find out, is He over there? Is He over there? Is He over there? How are lives being changed? How can I bolster that up? How can I support that? We always, for our own pride, want to reinvent the wheel and make everything up ourselves. Why don't you just support somebody that knows how to do it better than you? When Jesus sent out the twelve in Matthew 10, he had some weird instructions. After he tells them where to go, go to Israel. He says, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In other words, go out, talk about me, and do something. Fix their needs. You know, it's interesting because there's instructions in Scripture that says... If you cast out demons from someone, the demons will go about seeking a place and then they'll come back. And if the house is not put in order, they'll bring back seven with them, right? That seems to indicate that a lot of people that have demons cast out end up getting demon-possessed again. What a waste. 
But is it important to cast demons out of somebody? Yeah. Because they're in torment. And that should bother you. Right? See, I believe that what we need to have is the great compassion. The number one descriptive term used for Jesus is compassionate. And Jesus was moved with compassion. And Jesus had compassion. And Jesus was compassionate. All around Scripture, the most common word used for Him is compassion. Does anyone move you anymore? Or have you been burned so many times that you just don't care anymore? Whatever, they all got themselves into it. Who cares? Is that your attitude? I find myself falling into that one. Or the whole idea of it doesn't matter. I'm going to do something. It's not going to make a difference in their life. So who cares? Yay, we just opened up another soup kitchen. That's fantastic. They got full bellies while they go to hell. Nice. Is that your attitude? Because that's the attitude of the majority of Christianity today. You wrestle with that? I do. Where is our compassion? We are called in the Bible for charity and justice, and they're different. What is charity? Now, I was reading, uh, somebody sent me a book. I don't even know who the person is. They sent me a book, and it was called The Externally Focused Church. And it began to give a couple analogies on this stuff. And so I kind of moved some of that stuff into my message today because it was, it was pretty brilliant. But he said, let me tell you the difference between charity and justice. Charity is meeting an immediate need. It's episodic, meaning it happens periodically. Treating the symptoms, individual-based. You understand, when you give someone a sandwich that is hungry, that's charity. Are we all following that? Does the Bible value charity? Yeah. We don't think so nowadays, but it does. Do you understand that Jesus gave money to the poor? How weird is that? If you're God, why don't you just fix the problem? Why would you give money to the poor? They're going to be poor again. Right? Well, I don't know. Why did he heal Lazarus, bring him back from the dead for him to die again? I don't know. You understand? Jesus cleansed ten lepers and only one came back to call him Messiah. So does that mean nine never connected the dots? Jesus healed tons of people that never got saved. Why? Charity matters because sometimes it's not about that person being saved. It's who's observing. And sometimes it's to make a statement. And sometimes it's to change you. You're what needs to be altered, not the person standing on the corner. Sometimes it's just an obedience issue. The validity of charity work is that we do what we're designed to do and we demonstrate to the world that they are loved. But you know what the church is doing these days? And it's one thing that will freak me out. If you want to get me really irritated, start talking about this subject for any length of time. The bait and switch. Okay? I have a huge problem with this. Okay, here's what the church does. Hey, you hungry? Oh, I'm starving. Really? Really? All right. Here's a track. Come on, read the track, read the track. Oh, does that hurt? Oh, look at that. You hungry still? Hey, if you read the track, I'll give you food. If you don't read the track, you're not getting any food. And we hold it over their heads. Does that sound loving to you? Is there something wrong with that? Yeah. Oh, you're not going to hear the gospel. I'm sorry, then I guess you're not going to get any soup. You understand? The church is continuously baiting and switching people. How are they not supposed to get bitter over that? I get bitter over that. We're constantly saying, oh, we want to come minister to you. Oh, wait, it was actually all a ruse because we just wanted to share the gospel with you. 
I hate that. Is that pretty clear? And we keep doing it. We keep doing it to people. When do we just love to love with nothing in return? It says right here, service is only truly service when it's done without the expectation of a payback. All we do is look for payback. Oh, you coming to church? What, I've been helping you out for weeks and you won't even come to church? Whoa, 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 whoa. Why are there strings attached? Because then it doesn't honor Jesus if they don't come to church, right? Wrong! No, that's not right. But that's what we think. As I look at this stuff, I see charity is still being valuable. What's the difference between charity and justice then? If charity is episodic and charity is to meet an immediate need, what is justice? Justice is finding and addressing the cause. It's ongoing. It's correcting. It's society-based. This book used the best example ever. This guy said, there's a river that runs out the back of my house. If I looked out my window and I saw someone naked and bleeding that had washed up on the shore of the river, I would go out and meet their need. That's called charity. If the next day I found someone, a totally different person, washed up on the shore, naked and bleeding, I would go out and meet their need. But at some point, don't you think I should go up river and figure out how all the bodies are getting in the river? That's called justice. Charity is good, but so is justice. Going up river. But I'll bet you if you want to do justice up river, I bet you there's a bad guy up there that's throwing people in the river. You ready to fight the bad guy? You ready to go head to head? Because justice is not easy. Justice is not cheap. The reason why people are being taken advantage of is because someone wants it that way and they're not going to relinquish it easy. I used to read the Sacramento Bee. I used to read the paper every day. For years, I got it every day. Then I got totally depressed and went into therapy. I don't read it anymore. Now I just live in la-la land. (laughs) And I just whistle and pretend that everything's okay. But I happened to grab this paper. I was waiting for a doctor's appointment. I grabbed the paper and and on the front cover of the scene section was this story. It says she teaches by example. There was a woman that came into town not too long ago in a speaking engagement and a book signing. Her name was Muktai Mai. She comes from a uh, Punjabi tribe in Pakistan of 14,000 people, they're an illiterate village, meaning there is no schooling there. No one knows of schooling there. They do not run a school in that place. And the place, the village was called Mirwala. Well, in 2002, her brother was seen, her brother's 12. He was seen walking through the village with a married woman. The village assumed the worst, and the men agreed that in justice, they would all come together and gang rape her as an honor issue. They raped her to humiliate her and her family for what they observed. The imam, the Muslim pastor of the village, and her family took her in, ministered to her needs, and she stood up against those men. Nobody does that in that village. She stood up and took all of them to court. She won. For all of her difficulty and pain, they gave her 8500 bucks. She took the 8500 bucks and built a school. She said, the first school I ever attended was my own. She said, I had never heard of a school before. 
But I wanted to start one because I believe that knowledge will help address the injustice I saw. She began the school which now houses 1,000 students. 700 girls, 300 boys, I believe is what the count was. They said, have you forgiven the men that raped you? She said, not yet. But do you see the hope? Not yet, she said, but I've asked that all their children be allowed to attend my school. And now five of her attacker's sons go to her school. But they won't let their daughters go. This woman ended up writing a book called In the Name of Honor. One American guy read it and heard about it and he flew her over to raise money for her schooling. And she spoke out, can one person change the world? Yeah, obviously. Was that easy? No. Their attacker's case is now gone to their Supreme Court to bring them to justice. She said, since that date, there have been no gang rape attacks in my village. She said, God forbid this happened to anyone else, but if it happens to you, you must stand up, otherwise it's going to happen to somebody else. She was an uneducated seamstress. Her father was a carpenter. She had no education. Did that stop her? No. I don't know what God's laying on your heart, but there's injustice that bothers you. And we need to address it. And the answer may be you. You want to keep waiting for someone else to do it? All right. Keep waiting. But maybe it begins with you. This year could well have been called the year of social responsibility, of doing something about it, of addressing the injustice you see. It's a year of compassion, a year of compassion ministries. Would you turn to me to the second of the last two passages? First John chapter 3, verse 17, page 863. First John chapter 3, verse 17, page 863. One of the things I hate about John is that he's super clear and black and white, and there's no wiggle room. It would be nice if I could find a loophole here and there. That would be nice. First John chapter 3, verse 17. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. Right? In other words, His tangible act demonstrated that He actually loves us. But it moves on. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. Pretty clear? Yeah. Now, let me tell you what I'm not asking us to do. I'm not asking us to run around ignorant and naive and hurtling money to enable poor behavior. That's not what I'm asking us to do. As a matter of fact, I've shared this with you before. Within the first year and a half that I was pastor here, I was conned twice out of money. Listen, being a moron and having a good heart is a bad combo. You understand? What I'm saying is that we need to love tangibly, but love wisely. Our job is not to just fritter away or ruin what they're doing or what God's doing in their life or to meet every need just because we see it. There are some needs that do not need to be met because God's dealing with an individual. And for you to step in, you're going to ruin it. 
But there's an awful lot of people that do have needs that need to be met. And our job is to meet that need. Final passage, Luke 10, 34, as we close out. Page 735. Luke chapter 10, verse 34, page 735. It's a famous story of the Good Samaritan. What's the name of Franklin Graham's organization? The Samaritan's Purse. Where do you think he got that? Right here. Luke 10.25, a man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what do you see in the law? He said, well, I see I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and love my neighbor as myself. He said, all right, go do that. All right, well, who's my neighbor? He said, ah, I got a story for you. A Jew is coming out of Jerusalem and he's heading down to Jericho. And as he's going down the road, some robbers attack him. They beat him up. They steal all his clothes, leave him naked and bleeding to die. Now, if that happened today in our environment, here's where the story would have went. And then all the church gathered around. We talked about it for a while and pretty much determined that he was an idiot for traveling alone in a dangerous place. And then we went back to service. That's not how the story goes. As a matter of fact, the story, we pick it up in verse 34. I should say a priest came by and he was supposed to minister to his need. But that would have made him unclean, so he went on the other side of the road and passed him by. Then a Levite, a temple helper, came by, saw the man in need, went on the other side of the street and passed by. Then a Samaritan showed up. Now, you guys remember that Samaritans and Jews don't get along? Jews called Samaritans half-breeds. They were half-Jewish. And they didn't talk together, they didn't hang out together, they didn't touch each other's stuff. There was bad blood. But yet, a Jew was messed up. Here comes a Samaritan. What happens? Verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Did the guy get saved? Did the guy get saved? I don't know. It's not part of the story. But did it matter? It seemed to matter to Jesus. He did five practical things. He didn't avoid the person in need. He offered medical help. He provided transportation. He provided lodging and companionship. And at the end, yeah, he even kicked down money. Didn't give it to the guy, gave it to the innkeeper. Because that was the most responsible thing to do. As we carry Jesus around in the world, what does our community need? We're going to minister around here, right? I don't know. I don't even live in this community. I live in Folsom. Well, I'm going to sit back in my own little house. I'm going to talk about what you need around here. I have no idea. So I'm asking you. Pray about it. You tell me what you need. You tell me what the needs are around here. I don't know. But isn't God going to speak through you? There's something we must do. We have a lot of stuff on the docket. Do you understand that right now we have ministries doing practical things for people? Christina Lane's ministry. She runs a small group. All they do is practical, tangible acts for other people. That's their purpose of being. Samir, Patrick Toves, they do alongside ministries. They minister to the homeless downtown Sacramento. Those folks don't come here. Do you get it? What, are they supposed to commute in? No. 
It doesn't matter. Are they being loved on? That's what matters. Lane Gibbs, the leader of our men's ministry, runs a jail ministry in Placer County. Ministers to their needs. Are they coming to church? No, that's what the bars are for. Are you getting it? It doesn't matter if it blesses us here. Are they being loved? We will highlight that. You want to go global? Is that what you think world impact is? Great. We got four missions trips. Mexico, Uganda, Romania, Indonesia. If that's what floats your boat, let's do it. But there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done around here, and we're serious about it. We neglected this element last year in the year of community, and now it's time to make an impact and do something about it. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. Thank You for a challenge. Thank You for stirring up our hearts that we might fulfill a core of Christianity. That we might follow Your example. Follow Your model. Do what You did. Provide charity. Seek justice. Love rightly. Love tangibly. Lord, may we not just be a people of right doctrine but a people as well of right living. In some way, shape, or form, Lord, You're going to change this world. And we might get to be a part of seeing it. Lord, I understand that ultimately it's all going to burn. But until we get there, there's an awful lot of people hurting and I know You want to minister to them. And we hold the key would we move into action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.